Welcome to People's Church Podcast. Sometimes it's really good to just have things as plain as possible. And uh, that's what we're attempting to achieve here within this particular 40 days in the Word. Uh, there's four main categories of questions that we learned you got to ask to, re- to begin to actually achieve getting what the text of Scripture means and to really study in the scriptures and to make sure that you're not going left or right. With the way that we communicate today through social media and all of the digital processes that are available, it's very important that each individual Christian be able to determine what the scripture really says because now you have access to all kinds of things that claim biblical authority or accuracy. You can have all kinds of opinions to sustain anything that you wish to sustain. If you want to, as a Christian, live in a certain way that is actually not biblical, you will find somebody, some teacher that will say to you that it's okay. And yeah, it's fine. In the Bible, it kind of has that, that it can work for you. No, it doesn't. So what you do as a Christian individually with the scriptures is absolutely imperative that you learn how to determine the truth and the meaning that is in the text that we read. Four questions, main categories of questions that we need to achieve that. Observation, interpretation, correlation, application. Last week, Brent talked about uh, that. And uh, today, what we're gonna do, that we're gonna talk about interpretation. What does it mean? How do you discover what this verse is really saying? What is the real meaning in here? Then you're gonna go to correlation, which just saying, what other verses in the Bible explain this verse? Where do I get greater light in the scriptures themselves? Because the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. That's called correlation. The fourth step in Bible study is application. That is what I'm going to do about it. What am I going to do about what this verse or this chapter is teaching me? The Bible wasn't given, folks, to increase our knowledge. It was given to change our lives. It was given for application. And today, we're going to look at interpretation and correlation. How do I understand the meaning of a text? Well, we're going to use a model of one of the most vivid passages in the Bible by Jesus. Well, this is where Jesus gets extremely personal and intimate with his disciples. It's a very powerful passage in John 15. And so when we dive into this, we're going to discover some truths and use it for, so that you can see how it can go off by not handling it correctly and how to handle scripture correctly. You've probably heard this said before by some Christian somewhere, God doesn't expect us to be successful, he just expects us to be faithful. That sounds good, but it's not true. It's only half true. When people say God doesn't expect us to be successful, he just expects us to be faithful, that's true, God expects you to be faithful, but God is very much in the fruit. The Bible teaches that not only does God expect you to be faithful in life, he does have expectations of you to be fruitful. Fruitfulness or bearing fruit is one of the major themes of the New Testament. God says, I have made an investment in your life. I made you. I created you. I saved you. I put my Holy Spirit in you. And I want a return on my investment. I expect you to live a fruitful life. This is Thanksgiving. You are celebrating and being thankful for what the blessings you enjoy. In life, 
In essence, you are celebrating fruitfulness of choices that you have made and others have made around you. And that includes directly in faith to God. See, he very much is, this is a major theme throughout the entire New Testament. I want you to bear fruit. So it's not true that God just wants us to be faithful. He wants you to be faithful and fruitful. One of the key passages on that is this one that we're going to look at today, John 15. And we're going to be looking at the first 17 verses of uh, John 15. And uh, I want to take time and read this through with you and make a few comments as we go. So let's start right in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. The, the word remains just means to be connected, being connected to the vine. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain or be connected in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain or stay connected in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. You want to circle much fruit. God wants you to live a very fruit-filled life. Not just a little fruit. He wants you to have a lot a fruit in your life. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He didn't say a few things. He said nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Some branch, such branches are picked up, they're thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. That's an amazing promise, by the way. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. Again, much fruit. Showing it yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this. He's saying, I've told you all these things, what I've talked talk about with you, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. He says, I want you to be joyful from what I've told you. The outcome of this teaching is to make you joyful. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. 
This is a very powerful portion of scripture. It's got a lot of truth packed into it and could be the, a basis for months of teaching. In it are some scriptures that are very difficult or what we might call risky if you do not apply the correct interpretive models so that you understand what it means. This focuses, we're gonna focus primarily today on the concept of fruit. And we're gonna, I want to show you how a verse can actually be misinterpreted. Because this is one of the most interpreted passages in scripture by people today. And if you ignore, if you ignore the rule of interpretation, you're gonna get it wrong. And it's important to get it right. You've heard people say when you talk about the Bible, well, that's just your interpretation as you can have an interpretation and I can have an interpretation and somebody else can have an interpretation and they're all equally valid. That's what that video clip was playing into. That is not true. The Bible, each verse in the Bible has one and only one meaning. It has multitudes of applications, but one meaning. It may have all kinds of applications, but each verse you must discover what it's really meaning for those to really be properly applied to your life. The Bible doesn't mean 10 different things when it says something. It means only one main thing. Now, applications can depend on whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're young or you're old or you're married or you're single or you live in the 21st century or the first century. It has many different applications. There are a limitless number of applications to every verse in the Bible, but there's only one meaning to each verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That doesn't have 20 meanings. It has one meaning, and it has many applications. If you don't get it right, you're gonna go off the deep end. This is where cults get formed. This is where people get into all kinds of muddles with the Bible, using it to justify things that are not godly or not true. If you don't know the rules of interpretation, you go off into crazy things. And uh, you can make the Bible basically say anything you want it to say if you ignore the rules of interpretation. Have you ever been misquoted by somebody and they used you to try and make their point what you said? Has anybody ever taken what you said? Oh, did you hear that they said this? And then they are putting the, uh, the meaning different than what you ever intended. Well, that's what's happening when we take God's word and do the same thing. So how do you interpret this? So that when you're listening to somebody on social media uh, or radio or TV, no matter what it is, you can identify, no way, that is not right because he's violating this principle of scripture here. One of the problem verses in this particular portion is verse six. Verse six, when you first read it, sounds kind of scary. It says this, if anyone doesn't remain in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now, I've heard all kinds of interpretations of this, but it always comes down to the gap. It's the idea that somehow you are not carrying out what you need to, and so you are disconnected from the vine, and now you are gonna go and burn in hell. 
I've heard that over and over, different ways it can be done. If you don't remain in me, you're going to be thrown away. Branches are picked up and they're thrown into the fire and burned. A lot of times this is uh, in, in the idea of bringing people to Christ because it's, it's Christian bear Christians. And if you're not bearing the fruit of others coming to Christ, well, then you're going to be thrown away. You're going to end up and burn in the fire of hell. Is that what this verse means? It's, it's absolutely nothing like that. It's a gross misinterpretation, ignores context and rules of interpretation of scripture. So we're gonna teach you first about context. And if you're gonna get what the Bible is saying, you have to be able to understand the context first. I see more craziness when it comes to reading and interpreting Bible uh, than because people don't understand the context of this thing. So what, what I mean by that is that you ask this question about context. Who is this being spoken to and why? Who is being spoken to? Why are they being told this? Until you know who, what, when, where, and why, you don't know what the verse means. Long before you ever ask, what does this verse mean to me? You need to ask the question, what did it mean to the people God was talking to then? That's the original meaning of the text. Not some application for today. Be very careful about just stepping too far ahead of the game and applying a verse to yourself without knowing the actual meaning of the verse. And context is the only way to start to discover meaning of the verse. So who was God actually talking to? And what is he actually saying to them? This particular passage in John 15 was a passage on fruit bearing. Right in the middle of a four chapter conversation that's all on the same evening. This is a long, this, there's four chapters that record this long conversation of Jesus teaching and instructing his disciples on the very same night that he's gonna be betrayed, arrested, and taken, and be whipped and scourged before he was crucified. This is his last conversation, Jesus' last conversation before he goes to the cross. He has spent three and a half years with his disciples, handpicked men, and he's lived with, with them for three and a half years. He's trained them to take on ministry after he dies, resurrects, and eventually goes back to the Father. He wants to spend time with them. He takes them to a very private place for a private conversation. And what he's saying here, he's not saying to the whole crowd. He's only talking to the disciples. He's not preaching to a big group. He's not saying this in a church. He's saying it, it, it to his most trusted followers. The people that he has invested deeply in here. <clears throat> and they have lived with him for these three and a half years of public ministry. So John 13, 14, 15, and 16, we have one extended conversation. All happens on the same night. It's not separate. Same guys, same night. And in John 17, he then prays for them. Then he's arrested. <clears throat> and taken and crucified. Now, if you're gonna understand chapter 15 and the verse we're looking at, you have to go back to chapter 13. Because to understand the context means to look at the verses before and after the verse that you're studying in particular. So he's invested these three and a half years with his disciples, he loves them. These are his farewell instructions. When somebody is saying their last words before they die, you listen. I've been there. You listen. You don't want to miss a word. When Jesus, what Jesus is going to talk about in this conversation is the most important thing he wants us to understand. Because if there were anything more important, believe me, he'd be talking about it. 
So this whole, the subjects of this, this four chapter long conversation is him summarizing his ministry in these four chapters. He takes them to a private room. It's called the upper room. There they observe the Passover, which becomes the famous Last Supper. Uh, that's our communion that we celebrate. And in that intimate relationship with those he loves most, he starts this conversation in chapter 13, one. It's, it's not on your outline, but it'll be on the screen for you. John 13, one says it was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. So in other words, he knows he's going to die on the cross. Having loved his own who were in the world, he's talking about the disciples, he now showed them the full extent of his love. So what he's going to say in 13, 14, 15, and 16 is going to show the full extent of God's love for them and for us. The evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is an incredibly intimate moment. It's an incredible scene of intimacy uh, that Jesus is intimately here connecting with him as a servant. It says Jesus knows who he is, really. He really understands who he is. So he's going to perform an act of service to the disciples and it's gonna blow their minds because they, this is Jesus. This is, this is the Messiah. This is the Lord. The number one thing that keeps people from serving other people is insecurity. Because you don't wanna be treated like a servant because you're not secure in yourself. Jesus knew who he was. He's God. So it says he was able to take off his outer garments and he does this lowly act of foot washing. In those days, nobody wore shoes. It was sandals. Common custom when you went to somebody's house for dinner was that you washed your guest's feet. But it was servants that did it. It was a refreshing. It, was, it lifted the mood. But it was servants who did it. And Jesus does this absolutely unexpected thing. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the creator of the universe, takes off his clothes, wraps a towel around himself, and begins to wash the feet of the disciples, and they cannot believe what's going on. He is serving like the lowliest servant. That's, it wasn't the top servant that did this. It was the lowliest servant that did this. So he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? In other words, <clears throat> Peter saying, it's not going to happen. Jesus replied, you don't realize, Peter, now what I'm doing. But later you will understand. By the way, you don't understand. You don't understand what Jesus is doing in your life right now. But you'll understand later. Rarely do you know and understand what God is doing in your life, when, when he's doing it. It is usually only in retrospect, looking back and going, now I get it. That's what he was doing in that circumstance. You can almost never see what God is doing in your life in the moment. It's only by looking back. And Jesus says, Peter, you don't know what I'm doing right now, but later you will understand it. And Peter said, no, Lord. By the way, that's a contradiction. You can't say no and Lord in the same sentence. He's either Lord and you say yes, or you say no and he's not your Lord. 
So don't say no to the Lord. You don't say no to God. If he's your Lord, you don't say no to him. This is a contradiction. No, Lord, Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. It's not gonna happen, Lord. You're the Lord, no way. Jesus answers, unless I wash your feet, Peter. You have no part of me. Then Lord, Simon Peter said, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Don't you just kind of love this guy? <clears throat> Give me a bath, Lord. <laughs> Pull out the sponge. If this is the way I get in, okay. He was an all or nothing kind of a guy. Jesus answered, a person who's had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. You are clean, though not every one of you. For Jesus knew who was going to betray him. And that's why he said not everyone was clean. Judas was still in the room. They still had Passover together and Judas is still in the room. Jesus goes, you're clean, but not all of you because he knows Judas is still there. One was going to betray him. Later, Jesus says to Judas, whatever you've got to do, go do it. And Judas leaves. And later on uh, in chapter 15, we read it earlier. He says, now you're all clean. Why? Because Judas wasn't with them anymore. Here's the 11 true blue guys who stuck with him through thick and thin. What? When he finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? Jesus asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so. For that's what I am. I am the Lord. I am your teacher. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so also you should wash the feet of one another, one another's feet. I have set the example that you should do as I have done for you. He's giving a beautiful, intimate picture of serving one another as Christians, as believers. This is the first lesson he's giving to the people closest in his life before he dies. He's saying, I'm giving you my last talk, guys. Here's really what's really, really important. He knows they're going to be devastated by his death. They're going to be in grief. They're going to be in shock. They're going to be saying it's not supposed to happen like this. They can't believe it. They're going to be confused. He goes, guys, you're going to need to love each other. And you're going to need to serve each other. So I'm giving you this example to hang in there together. And for the rest of the chapter, chapter 13, Jesus emphasizes the importance of loving each other because he says you're getting ready to go through some tough times and I want you to love and I want you to serve each other. Then we come to 14. In chapter 14, Jesus makes a number of promises. Four to be distinct. This is the same conversation. It's just ongoing. They're still in the upper room. He's still talking to just the 11 guys now. Judas has left. He knows they're going to go through some stuff, so he gives them these promises to encourage them. Four of them specifically. In the first 11 verses, he says, you guys, don't worry, because I'm going to heaven and I'm going to prepare a place for you. Yes, I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again, then I'm going to go to heaven and I'm going to prepare a place for you, so don't worry, it's all working out. That's the first thing he taught them. He's encouraging them. He's saying, guys, you'll, you'll remember this. When, after when I die, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come again to you. Then in the next few verses, in uh, verse uh, 12 to 14, he says, and by the way, you don't need to worry also because you can talk to me anytime in prayer. I'm not going to be here physically anymore, but you can ask anything in my name and I will do it. 
that the Father may be glorified in the Son, so go ahead and do it. Don't worry. I'm going to heaven to prepare a place for you, and don't worry, because you can always talk to me in prayer. Those two things have now been promised. Then in the next few verses, 15 to 25, he says, don't worry, because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit I'm going to put my spirit inside of you and, and to be with you. He will be your strength and he will be your comforter and he will be your guide and he will be your counselor. So you don't need to worry. No, I'm not, no, I'm not going to be here, but the Holy Spirit is going to be here with you. Third, now we go to the fourth promise. Then he says in the last few verses, in verse 27 to 30, don't worry because I'm going to give you the gift of peace. He said, it's peace, not as the world gives. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. You can count on that. You're going to have problems. But I'm going to give you my peace. And my peace overcomes the world. So four things. So I'm going to heaven to prepare a place for you. You can talk to me anytime in prayer. I'm going to put my Holy Spirit in you. And I'm going to give you the gift of peace so that no matter what goes on, you're going to be at peace on the inside. That's all of the whole chapter of 14. At the end of chapter 14, the last verse, he says this. Come now, let's leave this place. So Jesus and the 11 disciples leave the upper room. They're walking out of the upper room. They're gonna go down into the valley. Jerusalem is up on a hill and they're gonna go up to the other side of the mountain where, where there is the garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is gonna pray and where he's gonna be arrested. And they're walking and to get that, they go down into the valley then back up to the other a mountain, the other side of it. And as they're going through it, they're gonna be walking by vineyards. And as they're walking by the vineyards, Jesus says, you know, I'm going to give you a little logic lesson here. And that's where he starts 15. I'm the vine and my father is the vineyard keeper. Every branch that stays connected to me, it's going to hear, bear fruit. Just imagine as he's walking through the vineyards. Linda and I were just in Europe and there was an area we were in that, that um, was just vineyards and you would see them going up the hillsides, the Druid Valley and... Um, in, in Portugal, um, 45 anniversaries bring nice trips. And we walked all through some of those vineyards. And it was, it, it, it's pretty neat to, 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 to have that experience. And this is what they're going through. And he's teaching them based on this, what, what environment he's in right now. So he's saying, guys, I'm the vine. But my father is the vineyard keeper. Every branch that stays connected to me, it's going to bear fruit. But if you get disconnected from me, you're not going to bear fruit. So you've got to stay connected to me, guys. I'm going to be gone. I'm, I'm not going to be with you. But you've got to stay connected to me. He goes on and he talks about bearing fruit by staying connected. Then at the end of the object lessons, he says this in verse 11. I told you this, all these things about serving, loving, about heaven, about how you can always pray about the Holy Spirit, about the gift of peace and about bearing fruit. This is all one conversation. I've told you all this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So that's called context. Who's he talking to? The eleven. Why is he saying it? To give them encouragement. Knowing the context, 
What do you think the odds are that Jesus meant when he is trying to give encouraging words to his disciples, whom he's gave these four promises to out of in, in chapter 14, and, and he knows that they're going to be discouraged, and he loves them, and he wants to encourage them, prepare them for the days ahead. You guys, if you don't bear fruit, you're going to be cut off from me. You're going to lose your salvation. You're going to burn in hell. And I said all this so that your joy may be full. Context. It makes no sense of all sense at all. The context totally disproves that idea that he's talking about hell. There's no way in hell he's talking about hell. He said, I said this, that your joy may be full. Do you think it would be joyful to say, by the way, I'm leaving. If you don't stay connected to me, you're going to hell. And you're going to burn. And you're going to be disconnected. And you're going to lose your salvation. The context makes the interpretation that way, nonsense. So the first thing you look at the verses before and after, figure out context and it'll bring clarity. Second principle of interpretation is this, you must define the key words. If you're gonna get the right meaning of the Bible verse, you gotta make sure that you understand what the word means, not what you think it means. Just because it means uh, something uh, else doesn't mean it means that in this particular verse. Have you ever had an argument with your husband or wife over the very same word? You said a word, guys, to her, and she took it not that way. I'm not speaking from personal experience at all, of course. Oh, could I unload here? No. You know, we have disagreement about what words mean all the time. Like, so the, the idea of, of that words mean the same thing all the time is crazy. Uh, it just doesn't work. Words have multiple meanings. For instance, does this word have multiple meanings? Grass. Yes. Oh, what's the other meaning? No, never mind. How about trip? Multiple meanings? Multiple meanings. How about lean? This is you after your New Year's Eve resolutions that last about three and a half days. Or it can be, I'm leaning on you. It can mean lots of things. What about the word batter? Poor Blue Jays, eh? I feel so bad for Toronto. Not really. <laughs> they're out. If you didn't know, they're out. Batter is not just baseball. It's cake. How about the word pin? Just the word pin. Three letters in this word. Do you know what it has? 62 different meanings. Think about this. It could mean like just a piece of wire with a sharp point. It could mean a thin fastener to put together bones that are fractured. It could mean, uh, it, it could mean a part of a lock. It, it could mean a baking roller pin. It could mean a bowling pin. It can mean your credit card pin. It could mean to take somebody down in wrestling. It could mean a flagpole in a hole on the golf course. It could mean hitting the pin. On and on and on and on. So when you look at a verse in the Bible and you see a word you can't automatically assume, like fire, that must mean hell, not necessarily. In this particular passage, John 15, the word love is used nine times and the word fruit is used nine times in 17 verses. Most of us would figure out, I think, I know what love is. But what is fruit? If I'm called to be fruitful, if God expects me to bear fruit in my life, I better know what it means. What 
is fruit. If he says this is what brings glory to God, then I better know what fruit is. So how do I know what fruit is? People say, I know what fruit is. It's the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, meekness, temperance, faith, self-control. Those nine qualities, not automatically. You see, the word fruit is used 44 times in the New Testament. It has at least 10 different meanings. You can't just automatically assume you know what the word means. So when we talk about fruit and such an important thing that Jesus is saying, I want you to be faithful and fruitful. When he's making such a big deal of this word, you got to figure out what does he mean by fruitful? There's many different ways that fruit is used in the Bible. For instance, Matthew 3, 8. The word fruit is used for the fruit of repentance. Matthew 26, 29, it talks about the fruit of the vine. He's talking about communion wine. In Romans 7, 5, he talks about we bore fruit for death. He's talking sinful lifestyle. Romans 15, 18, we receive this fruit. There, there's talking about an offering of money as fruit. Galatians 5, 22 talks about the fruit of the spirit. That's the nine godly attitudes. In, in Ephesians 5, 9, it talks about the fruit of life, which is truth, righteousness, and goodness, believers. Colossians 1, 6, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing. He's talking about, uh, you know, bringing people in and uh, that they become new in the faith and grow. And in Hebrews 13, 15, it talks about praise to God, the fruit of our lips. When you praise, that's fruit. So what is it? What is this fruit? What is this fruit that he says? I want you to have so much fruit. I mean, I want you so overloaded. I want the branches bending. I want it like, that's what I want your life to be like. I want you to be filled so much with joy in so what is this fruit? If God says I'm to bear fruit, Jesus is saying this is so important, it's one of the last things he's gonna talk about. You gotta figure out what this is. Well, let's keep going. We gotta move to the third principle of interpretation. I must interpret eight unclear verses with clear ones. I interpret unclear verses with clear ones. In this passage, as I read John 15, we find three clear characteristics of fruit. What it means to grow spiritual fruit. We find them in verse 4 and verse 8 and verse 11. What are the three characteristics? In verse 4, it says, remain in me and I will remain in you. That just means to continue to abide, to connect to the last. It's the Greek word meno. It just means to be connected. A branch that's disconnected from a tree it's not going to grow. When you see a branch that's not on the tree, you know it's not going to grow. You, that's the ones you pick up off your front lawn or your backyard. He's saying it's got to stay connected or it won't bear any fruit. That's all he's saying. Be connected to me and I'll be connected to you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. The first thing I write down, if I'm doing a Bible study on this, is I'm writing down an observation. And the first is that bearing fruit is produced by remaining in Christ. If you're going to bear fruit, you've got to remain in Christ. That's not an exaggeration. It's just plain. It's not reading into the text. It's really clear. That's a very clear verse. He says it three times. You stay in me, you're going to bear fruit. If you didn't stay in me, you're not going to bear fruit. If you don't stay in me, you can't do anything. So the first thing we learn is that bearing fruit is produced by remaining in Christ. What does that mean? Fruit is an inside job, folks. You can't just tack it onto your life and pretend like you're bearing fruit. This is a common Christian way of trying to display fruit on an outward way, which is not 
finding any derivative out of the life inside. That's like taking a barren tree with no leaves on it, tie apples to it, and say, I've got an apple tree. No, you're just tying it on. It's got to come from within. He says the Holy Spirit flowing in you is gonna bear fruit. Fruit is produced by remaining in Christ. Verse eight says this, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. So the second thing I'd write down if I'm doing a study on this is bearing fruit brings glory to God. It's produced by remaining in Christ and it's gonna bring glory to God. How do I know that? Because that's exactly what that verse is. It's very clear, I'm not making it up. I'm not misinterpreting it. It says that when I bear fruit, it brings glory to God. So I would write that down. Then it says bearing fruit is produced by remaining in Christ. It brings glory to God. Then in verse 11, we get to the third characteristics. I have told you this, Jesus says, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy, look at this, may be complete. Have you ever had those moments where the joy just seems to complete itself? And it's just just the most amazing moments of your life. Some moments you never forget. And he's saying, I want that as your life. Jesus tells us his motive for talking about bearing fruit, it's joy. So I'd write this down. If I'm doing a study on this, bearing fruit will give me complete joy. He says that so that your joy may be complete. Bearing fruit, whatever it is, we haven't yet got there, It's produced by remaining in Christ. It brings glory to God and it's gonna give me great, complete joy. Now I'm really interested. I wanna know what this fruit is. See, I wanna live a joyful life of complete joy. So we learned three things about it, but we're still stuck with this question, what's fruit? We can pretty much figure out the love, the other key word. But what's fruit? If I'm supposed to bear it, I better figure out what it is. How do I do that? Go to the fourth principle. The fourth principle of interpretation is this. Look for the most obvious meaning. Have you ever been talking to, again, I gotta go to marriage, to your husband or your wife, and as you are having this conversation, you're hearing something, but they're not actually meaning what they say. And this is often where a lot of the scraps come in relationships, is because we are not looking for the exact uh, can we say most obvious meaning? We think there's hidden meanings all in behind. Yeah, you say this, but interpretation and how the ears here is already gone through it filters of what I know you mean. Instead of just saying, oh, this is what you mean. The exact opposite of what people want to do is to look for the, uh, the most obvious meaning. They don't want to do that. See, this is a trap many Christians fall into. Please don't fall into this. They want to go find some deep meaning, some hidden meaning in the Bible, some secret meaning in the Bible. If you go looking for some secret, hidden, mysterious, esoteric meaning, you're going to miss it. Because the Bible isn't full of secrets. Did you hear me? The Bible is not full of secrets. All the History Channel, uh, Discovery Channels, the secrets of the Bible, headlines. There are no secrets in the Bible. It's right up front. Why would God put secrets in the Bible? What is the purpose of the Bible? It's to reveal God, not to conceal him. Why would God give us the Bible to tell us what he's like and then hide it from us? That'd be really crazy. 
The purpose of the Bible is not to conceal. The purpose of the Bible is to reveal. So there's nothing hidden in the Bible. It's just there. You just have to find it. It's obvious if you just look for it. So all this stuff about Bible codes and stuff like that and secret meanings, uh, there's really one word for that. Baloney. There are no secrets in the Bible. There are none. That, by the way, is the threat of the Bible because he makes everything plain and clear. That's why it's a hated book because it makes clear that we're all sinners apart from God. It doesn't, doesn't have a secret about this. There's no secret code. There's no secret formula. There's no hidden message. God doesn't play games with us. He gave the Bible to reveal himself, not to conceal him. So anytime you find somebody with some secret meaning, they're making it up, folks. In fact, if, if you ever read a, a verse of the Bible and you come up with an interpretation that nobody else has ever seen, one thing is simple. You're wrong. Because God, for 2,000 years, has been speaking to his body, the church. And if it is new, it is not true. If it's new, it's not correct. Because if it's truth, it's been around forever and ever. And thousands of people have seen it before me and thousands of people will see it after me. Because God doesn't have secrets that he holds back to keep from us so we don't really know him. You look for the obvious meaning. If you don't do this, you're gonna get into all kinds of trouble. People in prophecy will often do this. Uh, I did a weekend on, uh, on uh, end times and prophetic stuff on, uh, on our adult uh, retreat weekend in September. And I, I teach the things that are plain, not the things that are not plain. But I remember about 30 years ago, just to illustrate how it can get so crazy, there were a number of books that came out that said, and I remember these books very plainly. They came out and they said, if you assign a certain number to each number of the, or each letter of the English alphabet, you forget that the Bible wasn't written in English, by the way. But if you assign a number to each English letter, then the name Henry Kissinger spells Antichrist. No, seriously, books sold over this. This was a big deal. Oh, we found the code. Here's who he is. That's nonsense. That's reading in the scripture. It's eisegesis, not exegesis. Exegesis is diving into what the Bible says. Here's another thing. Don't try to make every detail mean something. When there's a story in the Bible, every detail doesn't have a spiritual meaning. It's just part of the story. Don't try to make every detail mean, mean something. A lot of Jesus' stories are called parables. And the parable is a story with one point to it. All of, all of uh, John, uh, there's one whole chapter in John that's just about lost things. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. The whole chapter, three stories, it's back to back and he was addressing the Pharisees specifically about how they were so out of touch with what God's objectives were and how valuable lost things are to God. It's very obvious what the meaning is. And yet, many take the obvious one meaning, ignore it, and dive into things that it's not saying at all. There's not five, not 10, not 20 meanings. There's multitudes. 
There's prodigals of this flavor in this situation. There's lost coins like this. There's lost sheep like this. There's lots of variations of lostness, but there's not a variation of meaning. They matter to God. So if somebody said this guy was wearing a red scarf uh, and uh, the red means nothing, it's just part of the story. The guy uh, was on a three-wheel bike because it's the Trinity. No. You're reading stuff into that. You gotta be careful today, especially in today's world. So don't try to find every little detail. That's what people do when they start saying the branch means this and fire means this. First of all, the word fire here is not, is not the word in the Greek for hell. It's the word pur, P-U-R, which just means, it's, it's pronounced pure. So it just means fire, it just means fire. He's not talking about hell here. It's not, he's not using Gehenna. He's not using the words that would be normally used for that. So you just let it speak for itself. What is obvious about verse six, let me read it again, this problem verse. If anyone does not remain in me, he's thrown aside like a branch and he withers and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are, and they are burned. Here's the point. Remember, he's walking through the vineyard. Here's the point. Hey guys, as we walk through this vineyard, here's a fruitless tree, right? A tree, if a fruitless tree has lost its purpose, does that make sense? I mean, if it's a fruitless tree, it's not connected to its purpose. It's not, it's, there's no fruit, so it's not achieving its purpose. The purpose of a fruit tree is to what? Bear fruit. And that's the purpose of a fruit tree, just to bear fruit. If it doesn't bear fruit, it is not fulfilling its purpose. So he says, what good is a fruitless fruit tree? Nothing, unless you use it for firewood. That's what he's talking about, by the way, here. And by the way, how did they cook their food in those days? Just go and turn on the natural gas. You know, what did they do? Did they have the microwave? They didn't have anything like this. Everything was cooked with firewood. So if you had any wood laying around that's been broken off, cut off from a tree and it's dried up, you're not just gonna lay it, let it lay there. That's energy for your dinner. He's simply saying this, a fruitless tree can't fulfill its purpose. What value is it? Nothing really unless you just use it for firewood and you burn it and then you get some value out of it. That's all he's saying. He's not talking about going to hell. He certainly wouldn't be talking about going to hell and saying, I said these things to make you happy. I said these things to bring your joy into completion. It just doesn't fit. It's when you take it out of context. A text without a context is simply a pretext, which means I will say whatever I want about this. So what do you do? What do you, so what you do here is you let the text speak for itself. And when you let the text speak for itself, the meaning becomes obvious. When we let the text speak for itself, it's very clear what the meaning of fruit is. We don't have to use any Bible dictionary or Bible encyclopedia or any other tools. They're all good tools. But you don't, you have, you don't need them to actually figure out what fruit is. So let's just go back to the text and let's find out what it is. Three things. Let's look at three things here. Verse seven, chapter five. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, where have we heard that one before about fruit? If you may, you may ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. That was chapter 15, verse seven. Now he's talking about prayer. So I would write this down. Remaining in Christ produces answered prayers. Have you ever thought about the fact that prayer can do anything that God can do? 
Prayer can do anything that God can do. So why are you asking just little, wee, tiny prayers? Why are you so hesitant to bring the majors of your life into prayer? Let me just say this to you. If God doesn't give you what you ask for, it will always be because he is doing something better and God will never give you something worse than you asked for. I didn't get what I asked for. God knew ahead. He knows things better in mind. Maybe you don't think it's better, but God knew it was better. And God is God and you're not. And God will never give you something worse than you asked for. He will only give you something better than you asked for. And when you pray, don't ask God for what you think is good for you. Say, God, I want you to give me what you think is good for me. Because you know I need more, uh, that, that you know more what I need than I do. So the first point here in remaining in Christ produces answered prayer. So now we're getting a clue about what fruit he's talking about here. Second, um, in 14, 13, remember it's the same conversation, same guys, same 11 guys. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the son may bring glory to the father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. What's the second thing we learn? Answered prayer brings glory to God. Just a flat out statement out of, the, out of the verse. He says that when you do, when you ask for something in my name and then I give it to you, it brings glory to the Father. That's good. So when I pray and ask for things and with, then God gives it to me, it brings glory to God because it shows how loving God is. Do you need to be asking God for some things in your life? What do you need to be asking over? Some of you are going through a really shaky time right now. It might be relational shakeup, financial shakeup, all different types of health shakeup, all kinds of shakeups in life. <clears throat> Let me tell you this. When your knees are shaking, kneel. You can't fall when your knees are on, when, when, when you can't fall when you're on your knees, folks. You just can't. You cannot stumble when you're on your knees. When you're on shaky ground, just kneel. When you are swept off your feet by the storms of life, when you're swept off your feet, just kneel. Because you cannot fall when you're on your knees. When you feel the skies falling on you, you hold up your hands in prayer. Jesus said, ask anything in my name. It will bring glory to God. It will cause you to remain connected to me. One other verse, 16, 24. Same conversation, same group of guys. Jesus says, guys, until now you have not asked anything, asked for anything in my name. There's that phrase again. You haven't asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Your joy will be complete. Yeah, when he talks about bearing fruit. So I write down the third thing. Answered prayer gives me complete joy. Did you know that over 20 times in the New Testament we are commanded to ask? Ask and it shall be given. You seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened. James says you have not because you ask not. God actually never actually shuts this storehouse until you really shut your mouth. One day you're going to go into heaven and you're going to see all the things that you could have had. You I mean, I didn't have to walk with all of that huge anxiety and loss of life at that time. You mean I didn't have to be in that isolation with the pain? One day you're going to get to heaven and you're going to see all these blessings. And the only thing why they weren't yours is because you have not, because you ask not. Jesus in his final words, his words before dying, 
to his disciples, to these guys. He says, I want you to ask. I'm not going to be here with you anymore, but you can talk to me at any time and you can ask. And I want to give, I want to give. And when I do, it's going to produce answered prayers. Remaining in Christ is going to bring glory to God and answered prayer will bring, bring joy to you. So when you don't pray, you don't cheat God, you're cheating yourself. You are missing out. It's like having a bank account that you never cash. When you don't pray, you don't hurt God, you don't cheat God, you just hurt yourself. I just heard about a person who has a bank account, just this week I heard about a person that have a bank account, uh, an investment account, <coughs> and, uh, and uh, there had been a death and this account was out there and they had no knowledge of that account. They, they didn't, it was just an account totally left untended. When you don't pray, you don't hurt God, you don't cheat God, you just hurt yourself. You cheat yourself of all the fruit God wants to produce in your life. Are you seeing a connection here? Bearing fruit is produced by remaining in Christ and bearing fruit brings, means bringing glory to God and bearing fruit gives me complete joy and answered prayers come from remaining in Christ. Answered prayer brings glory to God. Answered prayer gives me complete joy. There's a connection, folks. Just in case you missed it, Jesus mentions it one more time in verse 16. He says this. He ends his talk with this one last mention. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit Fruit that will last. What's the first thing he talks about after he talks about fruit? Prayer. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. So here it is. Looking at the word, looking at the context, and letting the text speak for itself, you can write this down. I bear fruit by asking in prayer. Boy, if this doesn't shake up your prayer life, I don't know what will. You want to have a a fruit-filled life. You want to have a life so full of fruit that the branches are bending. The source of all of that life is prayer. Prayer is the root of all fruit. Prayer is the root of all fruit. All the other virtues in life come through prayer. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. They come through prayer. Gentleness, goodness, uh, faithfulness, peace, patience, kindness, meekness, self-control. They all come through Prayer. Prayer is the password to everything God wants to do in your life. You know what the problem is? And I'll finish with this. We treat prayer like a spare tire. When I get a flat, I go pull it out. It's to get back on the road with that spare in place. When you're in trouble, you pray. In fact, we even have sayings that, well, all we can do now is pray. Oh no, has it come to that? <laughs> if you're not praying, you have no fruit in your life. No prayer, no fruit. You're just hanging apples on a barren tree. And it all comes through prayer. That's what Jesus is saying. The more I pray, the more fruit I'm gonna leave. His last communication with these guys his last private moments are saying, guys, you need to be in prayer because that is what keeps you in the vine and everything else will source out of that. You know what our problem is? See, we don't have trouble with prayer when we're, when we're in trouble. We have trouble with prayer when we're not in trouble because we treat it like a flat tire and it should be the steering wheel steering wheel. 
directing, leading the journey. So that's why the last thing we need to do here, we don't need to toss, end talking about prayer. We need to end today to say, how am I going to apply it? I don't know about you, but this leaves me at a place of, wow. I do want a fruit-filled life. I want a fruit-filled marriage. I want fruit-filled economics. I want fruit-filled health. I want fruit-filled challenge and dreams. I want fruit-filled life. I want a fruit-filled life. And this, this scripture, this last talk, takes these guys and aims them at a bullseye and says, you want all that? I mean, I want you to be so fruitful. I want your joy to be in, my joy to be in you and for you to be in complete joy. And I want it completed, but pray. And you got to put it into practice. So let me leave you with this scripture, Matthew 7, 24. It's our memory verse of the week. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Matthew 7, 24. Let's stand together. <clears throat> when you want to learn a scripture, another way you can learn a scripture, I sang on Wednesday, by the way, we recorded it if you'd like to purchase a copy. Another way to learn scripture and memorize it is to phrase it. You break it into phrases. This has three phrases, this particular one. And so I want to work it with you. You ready? Let's do it the first phrase together. Everyone who hears these words of mine. Now take a little break. Let it sink in. Everyone who hears these words of mine. That's a phrase. Then you let it sink in. And puts them into practice. And puts them into practice. Is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Matthew 7, 24. And if you hide the word of God in your heart, you're going to have the power to change and it is the source of all fruitful things in your life. So if your life right now has got barrenness in it and you don't take this message and go and pray, this verse had no impact on you. So I'm going to be this week praying about where I think I'm just a little too barren. I don't have enough fruit here. That's what you need to do. Fathers, we bow our heads. We are so thankful that you love us and you have this desire for us to be fruitful in abundance. But it means, Lord, being connected to you, Jesus, our Lord. And that means, Lord, that we need to be in a place of communion and prayer with you about all things. Because we don't want to be in a place where we have not because we ask not. Lord, we want to be in a place where we ask and we trust and we know that you have your way of answering each and every prayer we make. But it's always going to be done to make us fruitful. Thank you, Lord that we don't have to be in a barren place or have a barren limbs laying on the ground and Lord, just all they're good for us is having a fire to prepare an evening meal. God, we want a life that's just so rich. And I pray where there is need, Lord, in all of our lives that we'll turn it into prayers really quickly and start to turn the barrenness into prayers. And those prayers will turn our life into a connected life. It will connect 
our, our economy to God. It will connect our health. It will connect our wisdom. It will connect it to the steering wheel, Lord. It's going to be a steering wheel in our life to pray. So in Christ's name, I pray this will grip our hearts. May the Holy Spirit take it to a great place. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. Thanks for listening. If you find this program helpful or would like to learn more, please give us a call, 780-539-0572 or email mail at peopleschurchgp.com. Thank you.